Welcome to the Garden Culture Podcast, hosted by me, Bailey Van Tassel. I'm a self-taught gardener, busy wife and mother, and small business owner on a mission to live a garden-inspired life. Each month, we will explore what's going on in the garden and fields, as well as get to know incredible people who infuse their own lives with the magic of the garden. For more information on any techniques, recipes, or ideas mentioned here, please visit us at baileyvantassel.com slash podcast. Oh my goodness. Today we are speaking with Todd Kent, one of the founders of an incredible beverage company called Boochcraft. It's hard kombucha. I'm a huge fan of the brand and consumer. And what is so impressive about this company is how it was all founded out of this founder being totally disillusioned by running a fertilizer business, you guys, a synthetic fertilizer business didn't align with his values. So he went to pursue something else. And then in pursuit of this incredible company, they started everything with this premise of having real true fruit juice baked in, all organic ingredients, supporting local farms. They are working on um, byproducts, composting, waste, giving back. There's so much incredibleness going into this business from the beginning. The journey though, hearing the journey is so fascinating. So I'm so excited for you guys to hear from Todd Kent and Boochcraft. So thank you for joining me. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, Okay. I'm super excited today to chat about Boochcraft, about your journey a little bit, but I got to know the brand through a girlfriend of mine who works with you guys. And I was super, super impressed by y'all's level of commitment and consistency in an industry that I feel like is shifting and can be a little squirrely. And I was just so excited to learn more about it because as a consumer, when you're getting involved with, when you're just purchasing something, I feel like it's really easy to have the wool pulled over your eyes or to just kind of be sold sort of like a greenwashed product and think you're like saving the world and go home and feel good about yourself but then to peel back the layers, get to know a product, a business, what it's doing, a whole different story. Yeah. So anyways, okay, I want to start from the beginning and hear about how and why you founded Craft. Yeah, that's a great question. And I have some notes here because I want to feel the same way about screenwashing. So yeah, I got some things to, to, to say about that. But I'll just say that I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. Ever since I was 15, 16 years old, I started a, a business mowing lawns, mending fences um, in 2001 started a business that ended up becoming a fertilizer manufacturing company. I kind of use you at the house. Yeah. I just had compost delivered today. Yeah. So that was, <laughs> that was the problem with the business though. It was not an organic based fertilizer. And as I started to do a bit more research into uh, how they come up with potassium and phosphorus and nitrogen and these types of things uh, in a non-organic way, um, it led me down the path of really not wanting to be involved in that business as much anymore. And so, um, you know, one thing led to another and I folded out of the day-to-day operations of that. And my business partner, Adam, started Boochcraft um, really as an opportunity to, you know, stay in the CPG, consumer packaged goods, but to do something that really lined up with my values. Uh, you know, for us in the beginning, it was always really important that USDA uh, certified organic was kind of table stakes for 
us. You know, um, we aspired to become a B Corp. You know, from the very beginning, we worked with one uh, percent of the planet to to give back proceeds to um, <clears throat> initiatives that were uh, kind of centered around how do you say just like kind of better for you in the product, but also better for you for the planet. Because as a as a manufacturer of products, we had an impact on the planet just by the nature of what we do. Uh, and it was really important for us to try to find ways to lessen that impact. I feel like the question I was kind of thinking in my mind is, do you think it was easier that you guys started it out building it with that perspective than folding it in after? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting because then all the choices are different. Yeah. The lens that, that we looked at the business through was different. You know, I mean, this wasn't this wasn't like we're going to go out and you know build this huge business and take over the world. This was like, how can we do something? You know, myself and Ian, uh, Adam were you know were both entrepreneurs, um, and we wanted to do something that really lined up with our values. So it was really like, how do we take this thing that we're um, super excited about, entrepreneurship, uh, and then have it more closely aligned with things that you know we value personally: organic farming, regenerative agriculture, um, kind of give back initiatives, etc. Yeah. I think it's a cool advantage for you guys to come in knowing you have those values and then build a business on top of it because we're seeing so many people try to like retrofit into regenerative practices and it just doesn't work as well um, for so many reasons. But I think it's incredible and it's such a red flag to hear someone say I was in the fertilizer industry and had to leave because it didn't match with my values. And it's like, we won't have time to get into that today, but I'm with you. Um, so good on you. That's incredible. Um, okay. So how did you guys decide you wanted to do hard kombucha? Yeah. So, uh, I'm not sure if you're a kombucha consumer or a connoisseur, but, uh, back when we were concepting Butchcraft in the 2014 timeframe, uh, kombucha as it stood at the time was listed as a non-alcohol product, but through the fermentation process, uh, there's a small amount of alcohol and there's wild yeast in there that could produce more. Um, and so if you remember, there was a time, maybe a six month period where all the kombuchas had been taken off the shelf because someone had discovered that um, through storage in bottle re-fermentation would cause the alcohol content to creep up above half a percent. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you had some like truly authentic kombuchas out there that were already like fully fermented and above half a percent. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you had all of these companies looking to reformulate like, how do we get this kombucha down below half a percent and make it stable, right? And so we saw an opportunity while everyone was kind of going, going low, we thought that we could go high, right? And so it was really born out of the fact that we were all kombucha consumers, connoisseurs, if you will. Uh, and, you know, we wanted to do something different than the rest of the industry. So while everyone was zigging, we decided to zag. I mean, it's like, that's the move wow. in life, totally. <laughs> which is amazing. Um, I had to share a quick story. The first time I had kombucha, it was like one of my like kind of fancy, wealthy, like, but totally crunchy hippie friends. I think we were in high school and her mom started buying the, these bottled kombuchas. I don't know if I should say the name or not, but I think at the time they had a metal cap and you'd like, they'd pop off from the pressure and we all thought they were so gross. It was like too much vinegar for our palates, you know, and then a few years later, everyone's drinking it, you know, and it's like a staple. Um, so I just thought it was so funny because I remember we were always like, is this going to be the one that like explodes in the car and like takes out an eye? 
I can't tell you how many times I hit it over the lap full of companies. They're like open it in the car. You just open it real quickly and then it just overflows. That's from that in bottle refermentation. It builds up CO2 yeah, yeah, yeah. byproduct of fermentation. Yeah. So that's what causes that effervescence and have it kind of bubble all Istio, over. Yes. Yeah. That's so crazy. Okay. So you guys decided to get started. I know it, there were three founders yeah. um, for Bootcraft. And what did the process look like going from you guys have this idea, you're going to zig while everyone's zagging to getting it on the market? Like what did that, in a brief nutshell, what did that kind of look like? Yeah. Uh, about a year and a whole lot of learning. So uh, we worked with a company in the early days um, that helped us kind of build out the facility. We had to get our uh, TTB, which is the um, the franchise tax board okay. um, for alcohol. Okay. Um, so yeah, we built out a facility. We had a 5,000 square foot facility. Um, even before we had product, we had a, uh, a contract with Stone Distributing. Oh, cool. Um, so they're a craft beer distributor in Southern California. They basically service from Santa Barbara all the way down to the Mexican border. Um, and you know, at that time, Stone did a really good job incubating small local brands. Uh, and so we, we were able to fold into that. And we got a lot of um, support from them, you know, from packaging, engineering, just really supported by Stone. And we launched with them in March of 2016. Oh, wow. You were sharing a facility with them. That's what you mean. We had our own facility. Oh, we, they allowed us to come to their facility I and see. do tours. They gave us access to their engineering department. I see. I see. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. So to dig into a little bit, I mean, obviously from a values perspective, you shared that like the organic movement was really important, but what did it look like to actually implement now you're doing hard kombucha, but you've got this additional layer of using real fruit, organic fruit. And then I don't know if it's 100%, but like small local farms uh, to a certain degree. Again, you know, I think it's one of the, the places where our values led us and our past experience wasn't there. So we were naive to what we were actually embarking on. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I've got a funny story. So um, one of the large beer brands, I'll, I'll let them remain aimless, but uh, they came down, they were kind of kicking the tires of our facility and, um, you know, subsequently later down the road, they, you know, their own hard kombucha, but they had kind of dovetails into the story. So um, we're sitting there uh, juicing limes. And at this point, you know, it was early days for us, uh, probably 2016, 2017. The, the citrus juicer that we had at the time, you know, something that you would expect to see at like a Whole Foods, right? Like you, it's what you would get like a glass of orange juice. <laughs> yeah, from, yeah, yeah. Not manufacturing sales. <laughs> and so I have a guy over there, you know, um, he's feeding limes into this juicer one at a time. Uh, and the head of innovation from this large beer company was like, they looked over and like, what are you guys doing over there? I kind of explained like we're juicing limes. Yeah, I can see that, but why? So I explained, well, you know, all of our flavors are um, flavored with cold pressed juice that we juice in house. Really important to us. It feels like it yields a better product. And he looked at me and he scoffed. He was like, that'll never scale. Uh, and so then I painted that on the wall. That'll never scale. Because it reminded me. Oh, they gave me the chills. Yeah, it reminded me that what we're willing to do um, is what gives us the differentiator. What other companies aren't willing to do that we are willing to do. Because logistically, that's a, a huge undertaking. I mean, fresh fruit is perishable. Um, you know, we bring it in. It's a logistical nightmare. Uh, juicing it, another, you know, huge problem. So they just want to buy flavor extract, whatever, dump it in. Very easy for them operationally. So, that again, that was 
you know, that was that kind of aha moment for us and kind of gave us that rebel cry of like, this is where we're going to put our stake in the ground. These are the things that we're willing to do that other people aren't. That's our differentiator. Well, and maybe it's totally in my mind, but one of the things I like about drinking Boochcraft um, is it doesn't give me like a sour belly. Um, and I like with seltzers or something like that, like, and even if there's natural flavors, um, it just doesn't sit as well in your body. I feel like as a cold press additive does. Yeah. I think natural flavors is another one of those things where you were talking about greenwashing in the beginning. Um, they use the word natural, right? So then all of a sudden people have in their mind, like, oh, this is something like pretty close to uh, the original version. But I mean, natural flavor can be, you know, any of hundreds of different things and it's 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 far from it well i think another differentiator with you guys is that your product it's, it's on your website it's on the cans has to be put in the fridge and something to me that's like such a great thing because food is supposed to be perishable anything you consume should be perishable you don't want it sitting on a shelf for a long time there should be an expiration date it should be something that's consumed as quickly from harvest to your body as possible and I think that that's really interesting. I would love to hear more about, I mean, just a continuation of the story on this sort of folding in the real food. Because it's just, does anyone else do this? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> it's funny because, because we, we, were, um, we were interviewing procurement managers uh, and we were interviewing someone from a large juice brand, a non-alcoholic juice brand. So okay. their core competency is making juice. And I asked her when I was interviewing her, I said, how do you work uh, around the seasonality? Because, you know, a strawberry in January is not the same as a strawberry in July. There's both strawberries. But they're just very different. You know, she looked at me kind of funny and she was like, well, we just buy 55 gallon germs of frozen juice and thaw it out and blend it together. And I was like, well, he's like, hold on. You're a juice man. Your core competency is making juice. And you're telling me that you don't even juice the stuff. It's like, no, not at all. Um, so it was another one of those aha moments along the journey for me to realize that like what we're doing is really unique, not only in our web space, it's non-existent there, um, but it's very unique in the, uh, the beverage space in general. Well, I think that I feel like people are a little bit waking up to this whole like seasonal eating. I know it's very buzzword, but, um, I've been seeing things like fly around the internet specific to Italy where people are talking about how like the water is better. There's minerals in the water. The soil is better, which means the food tastes better. But there's also a nation of people who are committed to eating a tomato in the summer and not year round. And they're okay with not having instant gratification, not having food constantly available, you know, from wherever. And I think that's like a fundamental issue we have here in the States. Um, expecting everything to be available all the time and and also then not wanting to pay for quality and seasonality and fair wages. And I'm sure you guys rub up against all of those things as well. Totally. <clears throat> yeah, it's uh, it's always a, a tricky balancing act, right? Because, you know, to your point, like we, we're limited um, by what we can have based on the, the, the fruit seasonality. So we're not going to be able to have tropical flavors year round. Um, just choices that we made a long time ago um, but again, it's because these choices align with our values, right? Like bringing something in from South America so that we can have a summer varietal uh, in the winter. It just doesn't feel like a sustainable uh, venture. Yeah, for sure. Okay. I want to take a quick minute to actually go back and hear a little bit more about your upbringing, if you don't mind, because you started the story at 
being an entrepreneur and and having this fertilizer company. But I'm curious when you were growing up, if how were these values baked in? Was it something you just learned about? Did you have a moment where you were like kind of seeing the writing on the wall, speaking of like greenwashing and sustainability, or is this something fundamental to like how you were raised? It's not something that was fundamental to how I was raised. I mean, I wonder why bread as a kid, kid and you know, Coca-Cola and all the things. So I mean, I grew up in the South. So um you know, I had my first daughter when I was very young. I was 19 years old when wow. she came. And I think that uh, having that level of responsibility uh, at such a young age just has you rethink a lot of things at a very formative time in your life. Uh, so now I'll get this other into this human that I'm responsible for feeding. And it just made me a lot more aware. Uh, and, you know, we were lucky in Memphis to have, um, it was pretty Whole Foods. It was called Wild Oats. Uh, and it's a little small little outfit, but it was a really good health store. And um, Montana, my oldest daughter, her mom, uh, was also had a very organic slant. And so there was just a lot of influences at that age and a formative time when um, those choices were really important. Yeah. Do you feel I'm cur- I'd be curious to hear if there are other companies outside of like Food and Bev that you feel like are doing a really good job in the space of just like living their values? Bonafide provisions. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a great company. They're a local San Diego company. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So uh, Sharon Brown, the founder and CEO there, uh, you know, for, for us, it's about makers of products, right? It's too easy these days to go out and find like, oh, I've got a good idea. I'm going to go find a co-manufacturer. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we're making products. You know, we believe in, we believe in that slow food movement. We believe in, you know, if you look at our cans, there's a lot of uh, kind of 60s, 70s influence with the the super graphics and you know really for us that's a nod back to a time when people made things that were not disposable and made things that if they broke you fixed it you know and it feels like somewhere after that period of time we moved into this disposable society right so now you buy your razors and use them a few times and you throw them you don't change the blades you you know when your electronics break you know you can't fix them you throw them Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so I feel like that disposable society um, has bled into uh, all of our lives. Right. So now relationships are disposable. You don't work with them anymore. If it's not working, you just throw it away. Um, it's, that doesn't really resonate with me. Yeah. 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 I'm with you. It's so funny. We, I, my husband and I talk about this a lot. Like it's just, I don't know, a level of commitment and integrity that I, f- we feel like maybe isn't talked about as much, valued as much. And I think, that's a whole nother digression in terms of just values and society and sort of the hollowing out of society and their values. <laughs> so, I mean, companies, they just want to make something that's kind of thinned up so they can sell it for cheap, but then they're actually making record profits because they sell it over and over and over again. So, okay. So you guys have seasonal flavors. I'd be curious to hear about how you design the flavors around the seasons. Like, what does that look like for your process? Are you guys kind of like uh, choosing ingredients a year in advance? Is it just what's ripe and ready? How long does it take to get a flavor to market? Yeah, um, it's a great question. So we have a list of uh, about 25 or 30 small uh, family farms that we work with in Southern California. Um, And those farms will supply us with a list of fruits and vegetables that they grow and kind of the seasonality around those. So we've got a database created over the years to say that strawberries are best in this period. And, you know, watermelons are available in this period of time. And, you know, really 
the the shoulders of the season as well. We try to stay away from those because like as something's coming into season, it's still not quite where it needs to be. Um, so, you know, really looking at um, the fruit, like for instance, JR, JR Organics in San Diego, we buy all the melons from them. Oh, cool. Um, so we'll go to the, we'll plant the, the we'll go to the farm, we'll open the watermelons, we'll taste it, we'll say, okay, is this ripe? Is this ready? Uh, and then we'll make the decision to kind of go from there. So is there a max then? Is there a maximum amount of product you could eventually hit because it's just availability, seasonality? I would say that depending on how uh, rare the fruit is, mm. would maybe like like passion is difficult for us to get, you know. So the watermelons and strawberries and things like this are pretty ubiquitous. Like even yeah. we get a lot of strawberries from JR's Organic, uh, and they'll call us. Like you know, if there's a big rain, uh, there's a possibility that some of the fruit might mold um, in, in the field. So they're like, hey, listen, we just had this big rain. You know, if you could pick up these strawberries. You know, so that's another thing that we're really interested in. And, you know, something that you'll see from our brand in the future uh, is upcycled ingredients, okay. right? So um, because of all of the fruit juicing that we do in-house, uh, last year uh, we sent about two, two and a half million pounds of fruit scraps to the compost. So we yeah. work with Republic oh, cool. uh, to do, do all of the compost. And there's a, a pilot program in Chula Vista, which we're really happy to be a part of. We piloted that program with Republic. Um, but one thing that we could do to take that a step further is we could take that fruit scraps. Let's take, for instance, grapefruit. We, grapefruit's our flagship flavor. Uh, we end up with you know tons and tons of grapefruit peels. There's still a lot of really good usable material in there. There's citric acid. There's um, different uh, things that we could extract to flavor uh, other beverages. Oh, wow. Um, so yeah, like really thinking about how we can turn our trash stream into a revenue stream. That's insane. Yeah. That's we're amazing. We're not there yet. It's something that's in my mind. It's something that we're going to be working towards. But I think it's really cool that you're even conscious of the fact that there's opportunity there and in whatever way. And I mean, I think most of the time it's probably less convenient to have to manage that, but it's like what we should be doing. Okay. I mean, even the composting portion of it. If we didn't have Republic there to in that pilot program, it would have been orders of magnitude easier uh, to just throw it in trash, right? But you're throwing organic material in the trash, it actually creates more problems. Mm -hmm. uh, creates methane and, you know, just mycotoxins in the, in the runoff from the, the landfills, et cetera. So those types of uh, materials stay out of the landfill uh, when it is I think what's interesting, so, and this will bring us back to the whole greenwashing concept because I want to talk more about it, but I think that there had been this whole marketing campaign about recycling, reusing, composting. It's so good to do, but I don't think people are talking enough about how it's like bad not to do. I mean, for, I mean, I think bad's kind of like a scary word to use, but like, it's actually like not good if you're not composting. It's not like, this is such a great benefit to the world. It's like, no, no, this is like what needs to happen which is an interesting thing. So, um, okay. So in the hard kombucha space, um, you're not the only player. However, to my knowledge, you guys are the only ones using fresh produce. And are you the only ones that are still organic? Uh, one of our competitors recently dropped their organic certification, which was kind of mind boggling to me. Um, I feel like what happens, and this is kind of along the greenwashing lines that you were speaking of, is that you know people take things for granted, right? So if you're going to shop at Whole Foods, maybe you've outsourced your discernment to Whole Foods to say that everything inside the store is healthy. Totally. Oh, right? That's not the case, right? It's just that it maybe meets some other standards, but not everything in Whole Foods is organic. Um, and so I think that what happens is, is that 
uh, brands rely on that outsourced discernment. And if their products are in those places, then they kind of, um, by the nature of being there, there's some greenwashing happens, you know? For, For sure. sure. Yeah. But we're not the only organic certified hard kombucha. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's good though. Yeah. For the world. It's good for the world. <laughs> it feels like U.S. organic certification is such an easy uh, thing to do. It's, it's it, it again, it's mind boggling to me because why would you stop being organic hypothetically? Like, or why would another company do that? I guess that's just saying, you would never. Stop yeah, that. you guys would never. Yeah, um, probably a significant reduction in cost of goods. Okay, so yeah, then you, it opens up to different farms to get produce from. Totally, and you know one of the things that we use so uh, to ferment. Uh, and, and and get to the higher alcohol content. Uh, there's a lot of sugar. Yeast feeds the sugar. Wait, sorry, reverse that. The sugar yeast creates the alcohol. Um, or there's a there's a threshold of the amount of organic sugar that can be imported into the U.S. Uh, and so it's far cheaper to buy non-organic sugar. It's a major input for us, right? So if someone wants to say, "Hey, we're no longer organic." Uh, they could reduce their sugar costs maybe by 30%. Wow. Yeah. That's so sugar. interesting. But sugar is one of the worst things. I mean, I don't know how much you know about sugar practices, but these things are grown in India, in Costa Rica, and um, you know, these countries where uh, the regulations are not as high uh, as they are in the U.S., even for non-organic products. Uh, so you know, think about like farmers, they you think about the impact in – the U.S. here in the States, we like to think of ourselves as this insulated country, but we live on the right, and so the water that runs off of the fields in India or Costa Rica into the ocean which makes it, you know, all over the entire world. So the choices that we're making globally will affect us globally. Well, we're such big consumers of what's being produced globally, and I think uh, I was just sharing. So we're here at the Ecology Center, and uh, one of the gentlemen we work with is Jay Z, and we were just talking about sustainable flowers and how there are really no regulations because you're not consuming a flower um, and how in Ecuador, and I've shared this on the podcast in a previous episode too. I mean, it's so toxic. People are wearing hazmat suits and then their families are like, they're having children that are being born with all of these health issues. And then these super toxic flowers are traveling across the globe to us. And we're like buying them at stores and thinking it's no big deal and setting them on the top of our table. And it's just, we're not only contributing to a really broken cycle, but we're bringing toxins into our house and it's just this whole disaster. Um, but I think that's where there's because also a difference between organic practices and regenerative practices. And I think globally we can do a better job taking it to the next level. Agree completely. I think that USDA organic should be the baseline for any products that you consume. That's like a, it should be table stakes at this point. And I totally agree with you that regenerative practices uh, are that next ability to level up. Yeah, for sure. So what is next for Boochcraft? Like where are you guys heading? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, a, we are really excited. We've been uh, concepting a non-alcoholic product oh, for cool. the last maybe call it a year. Okay. Um, the statement of identity is a feel good functional tonic. Okay. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know how much I can say about it. We're launching in <laughs> January. Um, yeah, I mean, it's going to be you know, the same values as Boochcraft. So it's going to have the, uh, fresh pressed juice. Um, but it's going to each 
flavor is going to have a functional benefit, right? Okay. And so um, the entire line is going to have uh, four grams of soluble fiber uh, per per serving. Uh, and then you know, uh, the rejuvenation is going to have electrolytes. Um, the, the energizing is going to have caffeine. Uh, but the caffeine is going to be from cascara. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with cascara, but the coffee bean is the seed of a piece of fruit. And, you know, if you go to a coffee plantation, what you'll see is these big mounds of the external part of the fruit that's been discarded because all they're really after is the bean. They roast it and that becomes your coffee. Um, but the cascara is the fruit around the bean and it's discarded on these plantations, but it's really just mounded up. And um, just like anything else that doesn't have ventilation or airflow, it'll start to mold in those big mounds. And then when it rains, the runoff from those huge piles, and we're talking massive. Um, we'll run off with water, water streams, oh my gosh. It'll have negative deleterious effects on the um, coffee plantation itself. I'm so afraid to know the amount of mold that humans are exposed to unknowingly because I'm afraid it's going to like ruin my life and I'm going to have to go live off the grid next to a stream. And just... Well, I hope you don't ever eat peanut butter out of a jar then. <laughs> what? Yeah. So if you do a little research, uh, 100% of the jars of peanut butter that are tested, test positive for mold. Yeah, it's unfortunate because I also love peanut butter. So are you making your own peanut butter at home or you just know peanut butter for well, you? Well, peanuts themselves are pretty um, pretty nasty nuts. They're, it's a ground nut. Yeah. So no. it's not, not great. No, no, on peanuts. I eat them from time to time, but it's, uh, you know, I switched over to almond butter a long time ago. Okay. I don't want to totally get off course, but like, what else are non-negotiables for you based on what you know? And then I want to get back to this whole, the caffeine. Uh, so non-organic wheat and non-organic corn are non-negotiables for me. Okay. And we could do a whole podcast on I why. think that we should. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm on the brink of starting to mill my own flour because it's actually, I think, not that hard to do. Um and you can like use a blender. I don't think it's rocket science, but like, I think we need to take it to that level. I think it'd just be like, anyways, okay, continue. Well, the corn started, so they use Roundup um, in the field. So back, you know, call it 15 years ago, um, people would walk around with a backpack sprayer and they would selectively spray the weeds and not the corn. And then they genetically modified corn to become Roundup ready, right? And so then they move from the backpack sprayers and the people to a plane that would just fly over and just kind of spray the whole studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's not good, but it's better than what they're doing now because um, the corn would be, you know, in its kind of early stages and then it would grub and it would have the ability for the, the, the Roundup to be washed off or anything that was um, systemic inside the plant to kind of grow out of it. Um, so what they're doing now is um, they've made Roundup ready wheat. And one of the biggest problems with wheat is that when you harvest it, if it's depending on how saturated the wheat is based on how often or frequently it's rained, um, mold, right? So they'll harvest it, they store it, before they mill it, they lose some percentage of it to mold. But what they've found is that if they spray Roundup on the wheat prior to harvest, it acts as a desiccant. And a desiccant basically dries the stuff out. So now their um, loss in mold goes down drastically. And they don't have to clean any of that because it's not been added to the product. It's only been sprayed on while it was still growing. But this is weeks, days before harvest. Mm. It's just, I don't understand it. I don't understand how it's okay. Okay. Anyways, podcast episode number two, we're digging into this because 
What I think is really cool is that through the process of pursuing a passion, a vocation, something you just care a lot about, you get so educated in a space. I think most people, it's it's a very inconvenient truth, right? But now your livelihood depends on it. So it's, you're in a cool spot, I think, as an individual to speak about these things because obviously you're passionate about it, but it's more than that. You have skin in the game, you know? Actually, we all have skin in the we game. We all have skin in the game. Because it's like our health. Totally. And these things are ubiquitous. Corn and wheat are in like the vast majority of the products that you can sit. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's this whole like homesteader movement and people that are, you know, do it from scratch, get off the grid, this whole thing. And I think that's really cool, but I think that it actually puts it's put it's off-putting to people who just consider themselves like an everyday person that wants to do better. And I think it feels really intangible and really like way too much work. And like, I have to change my whole life. I have to be like Laura Ingalls Wilder and put on my linen apron to like will my own, you know, mill my own flour and healthify my family. And that's something I've been thinking a lot about where I think we need to help make it more approachable for people to opt out of just a really corrupt and unhealthy system. Like, and it's, it's, I'm politics aside, climate discussions aside, like, it's just not good for your body. Like, let's just go from there, you know? Yeah. I believe as a consumer, the only real vote that we have left is with our dollar, right? And so how we spend our money will send signals to these large corporations that have so much influence. Um, if everyone just changed their buying habits to USDA organic certified, again, it's not the pinnacle. It's the base. It's the base. Yeah. It's so, yeah. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. I think that's really powerful though. So I'm glad that you brought that up because I do think it's, people are kind of like, does it matter? Totally. Big time. Yeah. I mean, USD or organic would um, immediately opt out anything that's been genetically modified. So, I mean, that's a big first step. Okay. Yeah. That's amazing. So, okay. This is a little bit of a digression, but we are here at the Ecology Center and I want to hear more about this additional layer to the Boochcraft business, which is partnering with organizations like the Ecology Center, which goes beyond supporting the small farms and the organic movement. Um, I just want to hear more about what you guys are doing. Yeah. So I mean, when we started, you know, our commitment was uh, was with 1% for the planet. And so we gave 1% of our um, gross revenue uh, to initiatives like the Ecology Center. And at that point in time, we were working with a bunch of different organizations um, and what we felt like is that it was being diluted, right? The, our ability to have a real impact, one organization was spread too thin across multiple organizations. Yeah. And so then we, about two years ago, we really reassessed our impact strategy and, um, you know, Jay-Z, uh, these fine folks here at the Ecology Center, um, just kind of kept coming up, kept coming up. They're right here in our backyard in Southern California is kind of our, our home market. Um, and so they're nicely um, nested in between LA and San Diego. So it's accessible for us. We can do events here. They were very, um, they were willing to, they were willing to partner as opposed to just a place that we sent money. Uh, so it's a natural progression to, to really deepen our relationship. That's so cool. I think that's really important. Like the concept of going deep in one direction as opposed to spreading it out. Because I mean, it's hard to make an impact with fractions, you know? And so, you know, going all in, but that, I mean, that speaks a lot to the ecology center, to you guys, to everything. Cause it, I mean, there's a lot that goes into these, especially with an NGO partnerships and like, that's a whole, whole nother world. But the ecology center is cool because 
um, they do a ton of educating on fair wages for farming and just shedding a lot of light on how how easy it can be to participate in a more fair and equal system. Totally. And they've got a really great uh, farmer education program here. Yeah. And you know, if we look out these windows right here, they've got a school. You can see the kids playing. So I mean, I really think that the children are our best hope um, because if we can educate them and kind of bring them up in a uh, in an environment where, you know, getting a box from a local farm is just kind of a norm, you know, or eating fresh fruits and vegetables is just kind of the norm. Uh, they're going to grow up. And that's going to just have a rippling effect. Yeah, 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 for sure. Definitely, I think the conversations even in the home, at the kitchen table are different. I mean, I grow, I think I'm at the point where I'm probably close to 75% of our produce is grown at the house. And so it's an entirely different conversation and level of involvement that the kids have at our house than anywhere else. And it's just, it's inherent. Like now it's just built in, which was the goal at the outset. Um, But it is cool to see when I showed up here this morning too, there's just families everywhere, which is so awesome. It's so approachable. Um, I wonder, would you guys ever consider, like, is a farm in your future for Woodcraft, like growing your own? Yeah. Um, that's <laughs> quite an undertaking. Um, is is that in the future? It's not in the plans currently, but I wouldn't take anything off the table. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I mean, that's a whole nother, um, it's an entirely different business. I think for us, it would be, I think our impact would be stronger if we partnered with someone who that was already one of their core competencies. Mm-hmm. When we found a way to deepen that relationship, like here at the Ecology Center, like we have events here, we bring people to the Ecology Center to educate them. And so, as opposed for us trying to reinvent the wheel of what we're good at, finding someone who's already really good at what they do, yeah, uh, and then just trying to elevate that as a partnership. Yeah, I think that's better. I'm actually glad that you said that because that is. Again, like from a home garden perspective, you can't grow everything yourself and certainly not really well. So partnering with like local farms and having good relationships actually strengthens the fiber of the community itself, you know, and just allows everyone to do their best at a better level. I heard this quote that was like, you know, I'm going to totally butcher it, but like if if your kid is, is good at tennis and bad at math, like double down on tennis lessons not on math, you know, like like, go big on follow the passion. Totally. Follow the passion. Um, okay. So how can people find Boochcraft? How can they get involved with the company? I want to send people in your direction. I'm a passionate consumer. So just how can they get in touch with you guys? Yeah. Well, first off, thank you. Um, yeah. And you can visit our website. It's boochcraft.com, B-O-O-C-H-C-R-A-F-T, boochcraft.com. And then obviously in all those social medias, um, same thing. Um, yeah, I mean, reach out, you can reach out to me directly. You can reach out to the company. When you guys are sold everywhere, pretty much. Um, you know, back to the idea of going deep in a smaller area, we're in about 12 states okay. uh, with a heavy focus on the Western United States. So if you're in California, you can find us at any kind of Whole Foods, Sprouts, most gourmet grocery stores, um, mom and pop liquor stores, you know, uh, Sprout, uh, Safeway, Albertsons, Vons, Pavilions, places like that. Awesome. Yeah. That's great. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for coming all the way up here. I'm so grateful. Absolutely. Thanks for your time. Yes. I hope this episode has been balm for the soul and inspiration for the heart. I would love if you left a review to let me know your thoughts or anything you're interested in learning. And I'm so grateful that you found this space. 
For more information on any techniques, recipes, or ideas mentioned, visit us at baileyvantassel.com slash podcast.